Is it possible to do electoral politics with a social movement edge? Many people involved in issue-based campaigns are highly sceptical of electoral politics, where politicians are seen as sellouts and social movements are held up as much more pure. But does this attitude help us achieve big change? Becky Bond believes that you can do radical politics and still work in elections. She was one of the field directors for Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign, and she continues to play an active role. For instance, she's involved with the Justice Democrats, an insurgent movement in the Democratic Party that is pushing big ideas like the Green New Deal into the US Congress. Today we find out how she came to a place where connecting electoral politics and progressive social movement ideas seemed like the right combination. We also find out more about how Bernie Sanders' campaign worked and what radical Democrats like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are doing now to make change in the United States from the inside out. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. So, Becky, let's start. Tell us what it is that makes you a changemaker. Well, I, I mean, I'm someone who's a, very much a behind-the-scenes person, and I've been involved in social change organizing for about 20 years. And and the one thing that I've really learned through all this is it's really not about me, and that what we're doing is really it's it's really about how do we get people involved where they live in making the change. And and I have a certain like ideology on the left, which is very important to me. But I also deeply believe that if we can get the majority of if we can get most people participating in politics in an engaged way, that we're going to change society in ways um, in ways that I want to see it be changed. In, in the United States, you know, I think most people believe that people should be able to go to the doctor when they're sick. You know, they believe that all people should be able to live in dignity, which means you know having a home. Um, these aren't radical ideas, and and I think that if we could actually get um, most Americans involved in politics, we'd have a we'd have a much different society. And so, you know, in in my work, a lot of it's been premised on the fact that there's this huge but largely untapped capacity uh, in the grassroots that's uh, ready to be called into service. And my mission has been to, um, in my organizing and in the and, and with other organizers that I talk to, is to try and change the focus from the organizer being this superstar hero that's leading the change to being someone who is, you know, providing the management and support to those volunteers who are ready and willing to make big commitments uh, and help them to make the change where they live. Mm. And in some ways, what you're describing is a pretty radical proposition to the sort of status quo of the not-for-profit world in a way, yeah? Yeah, it, it is true. And, and one of the things that, that I often say that gets a lot of pushback is that, you know, the, that the revolution will not be staffed. And, and and maybe that should have been written that the revolution will not be fully staffed. But, you know, in, uh, in the United States and around the world, we're facing this rise of right-wing authoritarianism and the way we're going to co- combat that is not with incremental centrist policies and it's really going to take mass participation in order to to turn the to turn the tide and and we're going to actually have to pursue some some radical programs in our countries and and you know we're facing these really radical challenges like climate change you know, mass incarceration um, in my country, mass incarceration of indigenous people and, and asylum seekers here in, in Australia. And, and these are problems that you can't, you can't just 
is uh, an incremental solution is just is actually have measures just not going to do. And so when we have such big challenges facing us, then the only practical thing to do is actually solve the problem. And because the problems are so bold, the solutions have to be bold. And what I've found consistently as I've traveled across the United States and in the UK with people involved in the Corbin Project and and here with with GetUp and and some of the trade unions I've been working with, what 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 we learn is that is that most people are much more radical and open to new ideas than the people who are elected to represent them in government. And so the way we change that is to get people involved in actually changing um, who represents them in electoral politics. And, and the good news about that is that we select our representatives in government by voting, and that's by definition a mass participation exercise. And so um, and so if we can actually organize people to have choices and understand that we can make different choices of different people who will pursue a bold agenda, and that's not actually naive, that's actually the most practical thing to do, there's, there's a lot that we can change that we haven't even been thinking was possible. Yeah. And so, feel like we're going to get to this, but it feels like a lot of what you're going to talk about today, and what you talk about elsewhere, is how to um, how to, how to progressives, how to um, people involved in civil society, um, actively transform politics. Yeah, I mean, because if we don't do it, who's going to do it? I mean, I think I think for well, someone else is doing it right now, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, no, no, that is true. Actually, there's there's radical change afoot, you know, and and I think some of our leaders, it's certainly in my country, Donald Trump, is showing us that like one person can make a big difference, yeah. right? Well, the agenda that he's pursuing as the um, as the president, and you know, one of the things I think is that you know that that we've failed as organizers or as the social justice movement on, on a certain level, we've failed to ask people to do what it's going to take to change things. Mm. We've asked people to do things. What, what we thought they'd be willing to do. Um, we cut but, it all down. Yeah, but we haven't asked them what was what was necessary. We haven't said, you know, um, it's great to do a little bit. You know, when you think about climate change, these individual choices, changing our light bulbs, you know, driving more fuel-efficient cars, you know, but what we really need is massive, you know, government action to move us to 100% renewable energy, and that's a really different plan than to get everybody into electric vehicles. So I think we have to start being honest with people and telling them the work that, that needs to be done and and. and put it on them. Here's what you need to do. Um, and here's what we need to do at, at what scale, right? And then here's how we as organizers, here's what we're going to do to support you to make the change. There'll never be enough of us. There'll never be enough no. organizers to do the work, right? To transform the world. No. But there's enough people, right? Yeah. And there's enough people that care and there's enough people that are actually willing to get to work. And, you know, that's what we've been doing in the United States and the political campaigns I've been working on. We've been going across the country and we've been meeting with groups of people, inviting people to organizing meetings. Hundreds of people show up. And it's not to hear inspirational stories. It's not for them to get excited with a really good speech. We say, you know, we invite people to come and find out how they can get to work to elect a transformational leader, um, literally find out what they need to do, and then we give them assignments right there and put them to work. They come, like hundreds, sometimes thousands of people come without even a candidate there to hear campaigners tell them what they need to get done in their community and how they can get started. We put them into teams and we, and we set them off and running with a voter contact plan or um, or a plan to you know open up uh, open up offices you know to yeah. run our campaign and volunteers homes and, and across the country I mean people are willing to do really big things if we're going to actually win the big thing that's going to change things at the end of the road mm. and yeah the danger is us having low expectations on people because actually right. people are spectacular <laughs> yeah people I mean people are consistently amazing and you know one of the things that I talk about a lot is how that we have to have you know radical trust in volunteers to be able to step up and do the work and I think people think sometimes that trust in volunteers is just giving them the keys to the car 
and just say, go do whatever. You yeah. run the campaign, and that's not right. I mean, we, we have to trust that they actually want to win, and we have to trust that they want us to hold them accountable to what they need to mm. do, and we have to trust that they're ready to do more work than we might expect, but that also to do things that are uncomfortable, risky, and to trust that they're willing to make big sacrifices, which I've just seen it again and again, the sacrifices that people are willing to make in their families for change. I've, I've seen families where one of the spouses works so that the other spouse can take time off and work full-time on a campaign. And it's amazing because that's the most that they can do, you know, to to support the change. Um, I, you know, I've seen volunteers, like, turn their home into a campaign office, you know, for 30 days, open from 9 in the morning to 9 at night so that volunteers can come through and launch canvases and get trained and pick up campaign literature, literally, like, put their bed up against the wall. And so they put a folding table out in a spare bedroom and then make that the space, which lets them have a campaign office in their neighborhood to organize their community. People are really, they're really ready to, to step up and, mm. and, and take charge of the work of their own liberation. So, so Becky, I want to spend a little bit of time um, asking you about, so where did your passion for all of this change come from in the first place? You know, like, I know you've been involved in a bunch of organizations for, for a long time, you know, 20 years. I feel like we're probably about the same age. <laughs> um, but, you know, where did the fire come from for you? I mean, I got involved in organizing actually a little bit late. It was in my I was in my late twenties, and I was actually producing a radio show. Ironically, oh really, yes. coming back to base. <laughs> I was I was producing a radio show, and and you know a lot of the skills of producing a radio show is like scheduling a bunch of things to happen at one time, thinking about the content, but also the logistics. Do you have yeah. the equipment ready? Is everybody going to show up on time? Is it going to get all these things? And uh, and you know, and while I was producing this radio show, it was also in the time in the run up. Um, George Bush had been elected uh, in the United States, and there was a lot of talk about the U.S. invading Iraq after 9-11, and I really, I remember where I was in September 11th uh, attacks and, and understanding that things were really in the aftermath of that changing in ways that, that, were, not, that were not good for our country. We were asked to go shopping. We were not asked to, to deal with, with the issues because they were concerned about the stock market, and, um, and it was in the run-up to the, it was in the run-up to the war that I, I worked for this leftist telephone company, actually, in San Francisco that was, that was, also owned some radio, had owned some radio stations. And, um, and, and you know, it was in the run-up to the war that the company was just like, we've got to do something to stop the invasion of Iraq. And uh, the company decided it wanted to organize a very big uh, anti-war demonstration in... The phone company. Yes. That's in, extraordinary. In San Francisco, that's right. I guess that's San Francisco, right? <laughs> it, it, yes. And so, uh, and so uh, you know, I, I had the right mix of skills. And I was pulled onto this, uh, onto this project to organize this massive demonstration. It was environmentalists against the war and um, and we had a parade of um, of, uh, of people who walked, of people who um, rode bicycles, of people that drove electric cars um, that went from the top of a hill in San Francisco down to a pretty massive anti-war protest. We had 5,000 people come wow. for environmentalists against the war, and you know that was sort of the beginning of my of my organizing career. And, and I you know I got arrested a couple times protesting the war, and I organized many more uh, events. Um, in San Francisco, and and after we invaded Iraq, it was just like, wow, that didn't work. That didn't work, right? And because people had come out, not hundreds of thousands of people come out in San Francisco, and then millions of people around the world. And and I remember because I had been in producing this radio show, I had. Um, I had uh, referred this journalist who was writing for the Washington Post uh, to talk to the CEO of the company about what's next for the anti-war left. Uh, and so he had given an interview, and I opened up the paper the next day to see what he had said. And he had said, well, um, they said, what's, what are you going to do next? And he said, we're going uh, to register a million new voters to vote against George Bush in his reelection." 
Wow. And then that became my job. Oh, my God. To, right. run, to run the campaign. To I knew nothing about it. But anyway, so that's sort of how that was. That's my path to get involved in this kind of politics. So it was quite a quick connection between social movement activity and electoral activity for you. I think so. I mean, I'd always been involved and engaged in politics, but not in organizing. Yeah. And really until that point. Yeah. Okay. But he, he, when you were younger, had you been interested in political activity? Sure. I mean, I was a I was a political young person. I, I you know I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, in the conservative South. I, I went to college in Massachusetts. I I'd been involved as a you know as a as an activist who came out for the big moments when people were asked yeah. to show up. You know, I was someone who would show up. I was someone who cared about and read about politics, but I had not been someone who had been actively involved in organizing other people to take action until um, until the until the run up to the U.S. invasion of of Iraq. Um, and I, I just realized. During the Bush administration, you know, that actually being someone who's educated about politics, someone who talked about politics with their friends, someone who made the right choices about their lifestyle to live in a way, you know what I mean, that was that affirmed progressive values, that just simply wasn't enough um, when, uh, when George you Bush was the president Your keep cup wasn't changing the world? I'm sorry? Your keep cup wasn't changing the world? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I wasn't a crusader, I don't believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't necessarily see myself as a crusader. I, you know, I feel like we've been living in a series of crises mm. in the United States um, since um, since the election of Bush. And it's been very difficult to be involved in anything, you know, other than trying to than trying to change things, especially when the when the impact of what the United States does doesn't just impact people in the United States, but the people that we elect, you know, we're having profound, you know, impacts around the world. Mm. Well, and to me, it's interesting that like, I'm going to, we're going to segue to um, talk about your big organizing philosophy soon. It strikes me, I mean, war is one of those big issues that mobilize, has the potential to mobilize everyone because in a sense it affects everyone. Um, Do you think that you know, that it's significant that that was one of the issues, that that was the issue that really crystallized your path into organizing? You know, I think like a lot of people, it was the thing I was asked to do. You know, someone said, hey, we need to do this. You, uh, I, I want, I want you to make this happen. And, you know, the, that, that is a big part of organizing is, is, is asking someone to do something. And I, and, and I think it does get back to the sense of, of big organizing that a lot of people will do things, you know, to help us change society if we ask them. Um, but to, to assume that things are going to happen if, if we don't organize to make it happen, I think it's just, it's just not how the world works. And it was the same thing with me. You know, I, I, I had always been interested. I had always shown up, but I, I didn't take a bigger role until, until someone, until someone asked me to do it. And when they did, I said, of course, and I stepped up to do it. And that's a lot of what I do now is I ask people to do, to do big things. And, and, and like you said, people are amazing. And, uh, and, and people, if you ask them to do something where it's clear, this is something that we need to do. It's a strategic thing to do. I don't know who else is going to do it if I don't do it. So many wonderful people step up. And, and I think indeed in, in our country where we've elected Trump, people are very much feeling like they need to, I see, I talk to people around the country and they tell me I'm giving money, I'm making phone calls, I'm marching, but what else can I do? And they say, I want to do something in person with other people in my community. Tell me what I can do that makes a difference. And so it's up to those of us who our organizers, you know, to actually have an answer to that question yeah. because people are really, they're really waiting to step up and do things, but they are, are looking for guidance. They want us to point them in the right, in the right direction. And they want to understand if they do it, 
are other people doing in it? And will, and will it add up to the change? Because yeah. they, they're not just looking for busy work. They're really looking for the work that's going to make things be different. Yeah. It's like looking for the space between ground level participation, what you're describing, going to demos and staff level participation, which is, okay, I need to go get a job at a not-for-profit organisation. That middle space, which is where the majority of people could be, many people could be, but we haven't really crafted that space very well. I think that's right. And I think, too, I think there's a lot of people that have amazingly great jobs, you know, like people that have been, you know, um, teachers in the public schools for 30 years, and they have all kinds of um, knowledge and connections and mm. experience, which is amazing. And they can take major roles in organizing in a community, but they're never going to quit their job and go work full time for a nonprofit, nor should they, right? They want them to. That's right. And so we <laughs> I want, want them to teach my kids awesome things. <laughs> I know. And, you, and then you want them to bring that and they bring that authority and bring those skills into, you know, how groups of people come together mm. and organize, you know, organize for change. I mean, that's a bunch of a bunch of school teachers could actually do a much better job, you know, organizing um, uh, organizing candidate forums. You know, what I mean, oftentimes in a community and deciding what questions should be asked and who should be there and, and who's represented. You know, than someone who um, you know comes in from a political campaign might right, who might be just out of college, who might not have the same you know life experience. And so, I think we have to make sure that we have important roles for everybody who wants to participate, not just people that have a job in the So one of the exciting things in your pretty extraordinary career as an organiser is that you were on board with the Bernie Sanders campaign super early, yeah, pretty early on. Can you tell us about how that, like the process that you you went through, um, you describe it in your book, but can you just describe for us, um, you know, like what what went through your mind jumping onto that campaign early on, you know, and and why you didn't and what that journey meant? Yeah, I, I I was I had been working for 15 years. I had a fantastic job in San Francisco, California, working for an amazing social um, justice organization called Credo, and I'd been involved in we had we, we were involved in philanthropy. We gave away a couple million dollars a year to progressive nonprofits, which is a really amazing thing to be part of. And then we also ran activism campaigns, and I had started a super PAC at Credo to defeat the worst Tea Party congressman. And you know, and yet year after year after year, it seemed like you know our victories were actually stopping things from getting worse. Um, those yeah. are the big wins. Um, and and that we were just really sliding backwards. And it became increasingly clear to me that in, until we could take over government, you know, that our advocacy efforts was going to be a lot of money and a lot of effort, you know, to, just to stop things from getting worse. And when, you know, I, I knew, um, you know, I knew th- from my career doing advocacy, I knew, of course, Bernie Sanders and, and the work that he had done. And and when he stepped forward um, to run for president, it was kind of, it was a really amazing thing, although very few people took it seriously. People just didn't think that Bernie could win. And, um, but pretty soon after he announced, he was doing events and lots of people were showing up. Well, it was pretty amazing. And just, you know, like lot, like thousands of people were showing up to see to see Bernie talk about his analysis of what was wrong in our country and what we needed to do to fix it, and uh, and he was literally calling for a political revolution, and um, and and he just said we need millions, we need a political revolution, and millions of people are going to have to get involved. We're going to change this, and I, and I just realized I was like, wow, if enough people get involved. Actually, you know, Bernie Sanders could be elected president. And at the time, a, a friend of mine who's a longtime organizer that had known Zach Exley, he had actually driven to Washington, D.C. and just joined the campaign. And he was calling me every day. And so I was talking to him on the phone about the organizing problems that he was facing on the campaign and how are they going to get from point A to point B to point C. And finally, I was just like, Zach, 
you know, I had to just quit my job and come work on the campaign with you. And that was sort of the beginning of, of how it happened back in 2015. Yeah, wow. And w- what were the highlights? Like, is there one, which, I mean, look, you've written a whole book about it, um, Rules for Revolutionaries, and everyone should go and read it because it's a wonderful description of what we're about to talk about next. But is there is there anything that sticks in your mind as the highlight moment or the highlight day or the highlight experience as an organizer on that campaign? Well, I mean, there were, so, there were so many magical moments on the campaign. A lot of what Zach and I did in terms of how our work was done, and we were part of a great team that was uh, was really a hybrid team of, of super volunteers that we had hired and then and then people who had some experience in politics. And, and one of the things a lot of people don't know about the campaign was that, you know, not only was Bernie the long shot candidate and who started out with 3%, just 3% name recognition, but also there was a, just a real sense, um, you know, there was just a real sense that, that this this Democratic primary was meant to be a coronation and not a real fight. And there was just this real sense that if you went to work for the Bernie Sanders campaign, you would not be able to get a job in Washington, D.C. when Clinton was president. And it doesn't mean not just get a job at the White House, but any of the allied institutions, you'd be pretty blackballed. And so, you know, there's a lot of people that weren't working for the Clinton campaign or firms that wouldn't work for the Bernie Sanders campaign because they were worried about the retribution. So so we actually got this wonderful collection of people that were like true believers. Yeah. They were like, okay, well, I don't want another job. You know what I mean? If this, if this, if we can't come through this, and then, and then, because there was a lot of people that you know were feared for their careers and wouldn't work for the campaign, um, even if they, if they wanted to see Bernie win, um, we ended up hiring some super volunteers who'd never had experience in politics to join the, to join the team. And so together on the team, you know, what, what we were responsible for was trying to get the volunteers actually engaged in the work of the campaign instead of just throwing music festivals and building websites and trending things on Twitter for for the Bernie Sanders campaign. And so I spent a lot of time traveling around the country meeting people um, who were doing this tremendous work uh, on behalf of the Bernie Sanders campaign volunteers who were leading who were leading the change. And, and and I think, you know, the the moments that were really um that were that were the most meaningful to me was when was when I was when I met when I met people, whether it was in a coffee shop or in an organizing meeting. And I, I remember this waitress I met in Iowa who was talking about, um, you know, why why Bernie had really broken through and touched her was that she was talking about how that, you know, the Democrats kept saying that, you know, that they had fixed the health care crisis and, um, and that now everybody had health care. But, you know, everybody that she knew was forced to buy this expensive insurance that didn't even kick in until they paid thousands of dollars. And so she still couldn't go to the doctor, you know, um, because of the money when she was sick. And that, you know, just hearing someone like Bernie Sanders actually recognize that things were really hard for most Americans and that the economy really hadn't recovered. Um, like was heard, it was just like for the first time people felt seen and people who had been sitting on the sidelines of politics, you know, felt like not only were they going to get involved in vote, but that they were going to get involved and 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 actually volunteer and and be part of the campaign. I, I went to the Rose Parade, the Rose Bowl Parade in um, uh, on New Year's Day and because there was this group of volunteers who every who had created a campaign float and contingency and they were going to march behind the end of the Rose Bowl parade. So there's the last float in the parade and then they organized to go behind the last float in the parade. And so there's grandstands full of like tens of thousands of people. And they sent this woman to pick me up at the airport at like six o'clock in the morning to get to the parade ground. And she was like this, she was in her late forties. She was a Latina construction worker. And I asked her why she was doing this on her day off. You know what I mean? Getting up at six o'clock in the morning to come pick me up from the airport. And she said, you know, I know it's a long shot for Bernie to win, 
But look, you know what I mean? I don't know what my job is going to be like if we don't have a package to fix the crumbling bridges and infrastructure. And I don't know if my daughter is going to be able to go to college. And the only person I can see that actually knows how bad it is for people like me is Bernie Sanders. And he's the only one with a plan to fix it. And so even though I know it's it's a long shot that it could happen, I just feel like if I don't spend every hour I have that's not at my job doing this, then, you know, I don't know what else we're going to do. This is our one shot. uh, and, And I have to do everything I can do to take it. So I just have stories like that from again and again and again where I really saw I saw working people felt felt seen and and they understood um, that this was worth fighting for and they even understood the odds and yet they were still willing to spend what time and what resources they had to help elect um, to help elect Bernie Sanders and it was just such an honor to be be part of that movement with them and um, and it's just it's it it, it it inspires my work to this day so I want to talk about the how of your of your political process because I think you bring you bring something to politics that not every organizer does there's plenty of organizers community organizers around the world who make a distinction actually between organizing in civil society and doing electoral politics you know they're nonpartisan they separate that space um, they don't want to be seen as too close to political parties it's certainly the case in Australia certainly the case in an organization that I was part of here for many years um, this idea that we've got to be very separate from political party work similarly there are other organizations um, that are super close, almost inseparable from political parties. You know, some would argue that that unions sometimes play that role that they're super close to political parties. It seems like your work um, is different to both of those things, where it's you're you're doing a whole bunch of community organize, you're doing a whole bunch of organizing, but you're also saying we need to engage with electoral politics and political and political systems as part of our change making. Do you want to sort of explain? why you think that's important and, you know, just run people through your philosophy around how, you, how we make change in that in those terms? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I was often someone who just didn't really want to be involved in electoral politics, so I often didn't like my choices. And, you know, and I, and I really, if I was going to spend my time on something, whether as a volunteer or as a staffer, I wanted it to be something I could put my whole heart into. And too many times I felt like in electoral politics we have to accept so many compromises. And, and when Bernie Sanders ran, that was something that was just so clear, you know, that I wasn't going to have to compromise, that I, that I I wanted to get involved. And, and I think coming out of that experience, you know, I just realized that like, you know, if, I mean, the, the playing field is, 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 is not level in the United States when it comes to elections. And, um, and so the, the elected officials that we have, you know, if we don't, if we don't actually change them out, we're just not going to, we're just not going to win on the issues. And it's not very fun being a purist who loses all the time. And, you know, I increasingly think that we need to win, not just at the top of the ballot, but we need to win positions up and down the ballot electorally, especially executive positions where you can elect someone who can control a budget and make policy all on their own, even without a legislature. And and I've been working on these particular elections in the United States called district attorney elections. We actually elect our, our city prosecutors. And these are the head prosecutor in a city who gets to decide who's charged with a crime, what crime they're charged with, what sentence is asked for, um, who is held in jail while awaiting trial. And one of our biggest problems in our country is is mass incarceration. It's the civil rights issue of our time. Um, it's it's a it's a shame, you know, the, the amount of people that we that we put in that we put in that we put in prison for long sentences, but also people that we just hold in jail indefinitely for minor offenses before they've even been convicted of a crime. And and with these uh, district attorney positions, I've been involved in electing some people, where once they get elected. We've elected this amazing uh, district attorney in Larry Krasner in Philadelphia. Once they get elected, and once Larry Krasner became the head prosecutor in Philadelphia, he told the police, you know what, just don't bring in people who've been arrested for marijuana possession because I'm not going to charge it. 
just don't bring them in. Wow. And so he was effectively able decriminalization, to, really. to decriminalize marijuana, like in that in that in that one stop. You know, don't bring in people who are undocumented for minor infractions because if we put them in the system, then Donald Trump's ICE forces can come and get them and deport them. And I don't think that's a fitting punishment for a traffic fine. So just don't even bring them in. And he's able to use the he's able to use the budget of his office for you know victim services and for um, you know and for a, a, a restorative justice and for, you know, a lot of ways of making people whole and seeking justice, which is not about, you know, locking people away in jail. And so I just think we've been ignoring the um, the electoral realm for too long in terms of how we make change because the power and the budgets of people who are elected in office, that's that's a real way to make change. And we can't, as sort of uh, issue purists, ignore that, you know, any any longer. We, just, we simply can't afford to. And we're going to have to govern. Um, and we're going to have to figure out how to govern. Is we're going to figure out how to move, bring the movement into um, the electoral space. Uh, Larry Krasner likes to say that we elected a movement into office when we elected him. He was elected by a movement, and he represents that movement in office. And he's bringing movement politics to the part of government that he controls. And I think we just need to take over more parts of our government if we're going to be able to make the change that we need. Mm. And so even beyond those who have budgets, I mean, I have to say, I reckon globally, I know I'm really excited about the bunch of sort of younger, diverse yeah. people who, who've sort of seemed to have who've, who've come through sort of the legacies of the Bernie Sanders campaign, who are now walking the halls of Congress, you know, and rattling the cage, standing with the activists. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, there seems to have been a real oh, yeah. change at the midterms. It's amazing. And it's also amazing, like, you know, the big change that like just three or four people being, there are many more were elected, but when you look at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and some of the other amazing Rashida Tlaib and, and some of the other amazing women that got elected is that, you know, they're, they're, they're bringing like, these are young working class women of color who've been elected yeah. um, to Congress. And even though they're one out of many in this body, they're bringing a sensibility and they're bringing a transparency to what mm. they're doing in a way that's really connecting regular people to how our laws are made for the first time. And, and what's amazing about Alexandria is that, in part, is that, you know, the first day of her orientation, she went to a sit-in in the office mm. of Speaker Pelosi. And there were young people that were, you know, um, uh, wanting a plan to deal with the climate crisis. And uh, Alexandria had introduced the the New Green Deal, which is which is a, a huge package of reforms not for jobs and the planet. And, and, and what was so great about that was that she just really put everybody on notice that um, while she was now inside the club, she was still an organizer and she was not, not going to stop fighting for the things she fought for on the on the campaign trail. And, and it, what fewer people know about this, but like the Saturday after she went through her orientation, the Justice Democrats, the organization that helped Find, you know, to help discover her as a candidate and help to run for office, they had a conference call with thousands of activists, and Alexandria was chaired that call, and she was calling on people to run for office in 2020 and to primary Democrats who were not behind the bold solutions that we're going to need to see. And so she, that that was a very bold move to call people to run against some of her new colleagues yeah. and her party. And she's not going to stop organizing. So she's, she's going to start, you know, from the inside, she's going to start to change the system. So I think that's to see someone actually do what they said they would do once in office. That's a pretty that's a pretty radical thing in the United States, and it's, it's giving voters and volunteers hope that if they engage, they can actually change things. So it, it's, it's a bit of a step, but you are famous for your phrase, big organising, involving larger and larger numbers of people in politics. So what is big organising's contribution to how we transform politics? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think like too often, uh, I think that the professionalization of politics in, in the United States and other countries have have led political leaders to focus on smaller and smaller numbers of people um, just to get the thinnest margin of victory in a race. And and what that's meant is that they've catered their messages and their politics to only a certain segment of society. But it's also meant that they've sort of le- lost touch with how most people are are living. And it and it's a and it's a it's a very dangerous spiral to be in. And 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 oftentimes people use this concept of big data to decide who needs to be talked to and what messages go to what people. And they they slice and dice the electorate into such small segments, each getting different messages, that it really destroys the sense that we're in it together and that we're a collective and, you know, where are we going as a a community, as a nation. And and, and instead of looking to big data, what what big organizing does, it just says that, like, actually, you know, if we can organize as many people as possible to get involved, and that's going to take a lot of people, right? It's going to take a lot of volunteers if we're going to um, organize as many people as possible. But if we can talk to everybody, right, about the change that we want to see in the country, that we're actually going to find, um, we're going to find a, a common ground, um, and we're going to find, uh, we're going to kind of find a common set of issues that are actually far, that actually show that the center is far to the left where our centrist politicians actually see it as. And that, like I said earlier, there is this really huge capacity in the grassroots that's ready to do the work of change society and being involved in politics. And so we need organizing tactics that will help us tap into that and put that capacity um, to work. On the Bernie Sanders campaign, you know, we, we learned that if you have a bold message that people respond to and you have an authentic messenger that people actually believe in who says that message, they'll actually do it once it's office, and you have a movement to tap into that you can actually really, um, you can really um, get within victory, get, get get close to victory, right? It doesn't necessarily put you over top, but it puts victory within reach, right? And, um, and, and, and it's, but it's not just having a bold message, a bold messenger, and a movement to tap into. You actually need a plan to win, and and that plan to win has to take into account the fact that the other side has a ton of money, and the other side also has these really powerful and entrenched institutions. So it's our job with big organizing is to figure out how to turn how to turn people right with big organizing into a force that can go toe to toe with their big money and their entrenched and, and increasingly out of touch uh, institutions. Because even if we find that the electorate has moved significantly on issues that matter, it doesn't mean that we're going to be able to win to win elections. And we're going to have to win elections if we're going to be able to move the policies at the scale that we need to to confront these, these crushing challenges that are facing us today from right-wing authoritarianism to um, you know, mass incarceration in my country to, um, to climate change to the changing nature of work and how much, how much more precarious mm. it is for workers to wealth inequality. These are, all really, these are all really big things where it's just the center will not hold if we if we simply maintain the status quo. Yeah, yeah. So let's move to some reflections. What is, so looking back at your career and looking particularly at the last few years, but, you know, you've had a long career in organising, what's the most striking lesson from your work as a changemaker? You know, I, I would say one of the, one of the, I say there's, there's two, there's two lessons that, that, that seem increasingly important to me. One is that, is that we have to stop looking for leaders and instead we have to ask who wants to get to work because that's where that's where we find the best leaders in our movement. I think too often we've asked who wants to lead, who wants to have this position, who should be in charge of this. And in reality we should we should say who who wants to get to work? Because those are two different sets of people, the people who want to lead and the people who want to get to work. And it's with the people that want to get to work where I think we find the real leaders and where we also find the diversity mm. um, and, 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 and where we're going to actually find our, we're going to find our power. The, um, uh, on the Bernie Sanders campaign, when we 
Zach opened some volunteer offices in Florida, and then you needed somebody to manage the offices, volunteers to manage the offices. And he didn't ask who wants to be the manager of the office. He asked who wants to clean the office and um, who will be responsible for cleaning the office. And it was a person that was willing to be responsible for cleaning the office was the person that became that we made the office manager. Yeah, well. Right? Because that's going to be the right person. One person was a a, 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 a resident at, at the hospital. It was a doctor. You know what I mean? In training of the resident who, you know what I mean, who, who understood that – to step forward and do the thing that's most important. And that, that's what we see. That's where we see the best leaders. The second thing is that I think it's people who are new to politics who are just making the bigger difference at this time. And it doesn't mean that we don't all have a role in this, but that when, you know, as as we've seen since, you know, 2016 and the Bernie Sanders campaign in the United States through the Women's March, you know, through today, people new to politics um, coming into the system are, are what's, are what's, really powering the biggest changes that we're seeing. Um, we're seeing young people come into politics. We're seeing people that have never been involved in politics in their whole lives and have decided this is the time to get in, in, involved. And they bring new sets of contacts. They bring new ideas. They don't think this can't be done because it didn't work in the past. Mm. They just think we've got to figure out a way to do this and we'll try anything to, to get us there. And it really it really gives me it really gives me hope. And in, in, in meetings that I go to and in, in, in events that I plan, often ask who's this is the first time they've been involved in politics the first campaign they've been involved in, and inevitably, like, half the hands go up. And and not only does that show how powerful it is they're getting involved, but I, everybody whose hand didn't go up, you can just see the hope that mm. springs within them that, like, this time it's going to be different because so many new people are involved. Let's face it, those of us who've been involved in politics, you know, for a long time, we got here on our watch. And so the people that got us into this mess are not necessarily the ones that are going to get us out of it. And so I'm really excited about a new generation of leaders, especially especially young people, the people that are under 30. They're, in the United States, people that came of age during the financial crisis in 2008, they have a, a real sense of the economic hardships and challenges that we're facing. Um, and the climate crisis also, they tend to be incredibly diverse. They're really open to teamwork and hard work. Mm. They read books. I mean, I, I have to say... Hopefully they listen to good podcasts. And too. listen to good podcasts, yeah. So I have to say, I have a lot of faith in this new generation that's coming up, and I and I and I think that that they are 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 they are seeking the the radical change that mm. we need, and they see it as the only practical way forward. They think it's delusional this strategy of trying to uh, pursue incremental change, and you know what I mean. And and I think it's and they're not taking no for an answer, right? They're really taking charge, and that's why it's exciting with uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, you know, and other folks. You know, I just wish she was old enough to run for president. Um, she you know, will be one day. Yes, in six <laughs> years, right? You know, so um, so anyway, so that that gives me that gives me a lot of hope to uh, that 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 we're we're on the cusp. Of of, of big, meaningful structural change. Yeah. So my final question, right? We've got a bunch of listeners who've just who've just been absorbing everything that you have said about change making. What is the the one thing they could take away and do differently, based on your experience? Oh wow. Okay. The one thing that people could I, here's here's what I, I would have to say is just like if if you is like getting involved with people where you live in things that will make a difference. It's it's not just amazing for the community and for the change we need to make. It's also going to be amazing for you personally. And I think, you know, I'm someone who, you know, whenever there's an election, I like to volunteer to go knock on doors and talk to voters. I like to get on the phone and go to the phone bank. Like, I like to show up at the campaign office and, and pitch in. And, and it's it's... First of all, it's because that's the most important thing to do. We know when it's time for an election, or, um, or, or when you're in the middle of a campaign. But also, 
you know, we're really going to have to reach out to people that we don't know and and get to work together on the solutions that we need to see. And so I, I really think that one of the most important things to do is not just read about what's going on. Don't just sort of retweet or repost things on Facebook. Don't just sort of argue with your relatives, but really get involved in person where you can bring your whole self um, to to be part of the change that we that we want to see, even in small ways. I, I think I think you know, with the way social media has been taken over by um, by manipulation and by corporate control and all these sorts of things that we really need to actually be talking to each other in person, the people that we know when we're shoulder to shoulder with in this movement, but also the people that we need to convert and bring over to our side. So I'd really encourage people to get, get involved in person. Yeah, fantastic. So thank you so much. Changemaker Chats are hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Our Changemaker Chats are produced by me. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We are also supported by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. And don't forget to register for one of our masterclasses if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking.